Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, the podcast is back after a short break. More, more on which shortly. Um, and strangely, and this, this may be a reflection on, on the general content. Strangely, the figures actually went up <laughs> while the podcast wasn't on. Wasn't being released. So what does that tell us? Uh, it seemed that a lot of people were listening to old episodes, which, which are all there in the archive. Um, but that seems to be, you know, uh, some 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 comment on the general content. People actually listened more to the podcast when it wasn't being released. Armenia seems to have come to the party. We were riding high on the Armenian charts. I don't know why that is. Um, put me in mind of Ashok Potikan. He was a player from Armenia. And he came over, and it was it was a planes, trains, and automobiles business. He came over to play in the old Benson Edges Championship, the qualifying event for the Masters. Uh, but uh, And he finally made it. It took him nearly two days to get here. But he'd actually misread the, the date of his match, and he arrived late. So he, he actually, in theory, got here in time to play. But actually, his match had been scheduled for the day before, and he was scratched, and that was the end of that. But uh, anyway, we've been away for three weeks. We're already talking about Ashok Potikan. And that's the sort of podcast, if you've never listened before, <laughs> that's the sort of podcast it is. Um, but of course we left uh, three weeks ago now on, on a cliffhanger. Um, I said this was like who shot JR. I may have been overselling it slightly, but Richard Radcliffe, one of our listeners, wrote him with a question. And the question was, who is the only player to win a professional snooker tournament after losing more frames than he won during the whole tournament? Now, if you just bear with me, I'm just going to take a moment just to count the number of emails we had on this. Uh, let me just see. Uh, we had two. We had two, and one was from Richard himself. So it, maybe the Who Shot JR analogy didn't quite work. Um, but uh, before I read the answer, Phil Spivey did, in fact, uh, attempt to answer it. Um, he said, I was about to write with the, the answer to the question when I turned on Discovery Plus and immediately saw Sean O'Sullivan make a one four seven against Barry Hawkins. Remarkable stuff. Well, yes, this was in the European Masters qualifiers, and, and well done to Sean, his first maximum. And uh, a lot of people have seen the... The wonderful shot he played on the 15th black to keep it going. Already one of the shots of the season. Anyway, Phil uh, continues. Back to the question. 
which is to do with a player winning a tournament despite having lost more frames than he won. I'm probably wrong, but I remember reading years ago about a final between Joe and Fred Davis in a tournament that operated on a handicap basis, I think in the early 50s. As I recall, Fred won 36-35, but after the match, an envelope was opened to reveal the handicap, and surprisingly, the organisers had deemed Joe worthy of receiving two frames, as they thought Fred had now surpassed him. So Joe ended up winning by a 37-36 scoreline. This may be complete rubbish, and it's probably not the answer to Richard's question, but either way, have you ever heard of this story? I'm not sure I've heard of that specific story, but it rings true, um, because Joe Davis was very proud, understandably, of his uh, record of... Uh, you know, never losing on level terms. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's not a story that surprised me. I found an old interview of Fred Davis actually, where he was, um, not, not speaking in the, in the most glowing terms about Joe actually. I mean, it wasn't all bad, but he, he, in a competitive sense, not, not as a person, but in a competitive sense, he was very protective of, of his reputation. But anyway, that's not the answer. Richard has written in, thankfully, with the answer. So Richard Radcliffe, he said, uh, to follow up my email cliffhanger, thanks for building up to the heights of who shot AR. Well, <laughs> I, I'm, I may have oversold it, Richard, but anyway, he said, he said, my question was, who's the only player to win a professional Stuka tournament after losing more frames than he won during the whole tournament? You suggested the answer could be Ken Doherty, who was awarded the 1998 Irish Masters when Ronnie O'Sullivan was stripped of the title. Ken actually played three matches there and won 6-1, 6-1 before losing 9-3 in the final. So that's 15-11 in favour of Ken. But like you said, Ronnie was the winner anyway. Yes, I mean, obviously, I didn't bother to look look it up before <laughs> before answering. Um, but anyway, uh, well, here's the answer. So, I mean, it's a drum roll seems a little bit uh, pointless now. Let's just answer it. The answer is Karen Wilson in the Invitational Championship League towards the end of the 2020-21 season. He played in four groups in this tournament, then the winners group. He played 37 matches altogether, winning 21 and losing 16. He won 77 frames in total, but lost 81 throughout the whole of the tournament, thus becoming the only player to lose more frames than he won and being the champion. Well, there we are. So that's if you've been thinking of nothing else these last three weeks, that's the answer. Karen, I should have got that, really, because the Championship League, obviously played in a league format, is, is an event where that could happen. Um, so the answer, Karen Wilson, just to reiterate, he won 77 frames, but lost 81. A lot of frames in, in the tournament. That's where he set the record, the centuries record, 23 for a single event which Matt Selt, in that very same tournament, equaled last year. Before I go any further, I want to mention uh, Thomas Bartley, who's... Uh, I met Thomas recently. He's a university student, and uh, he's looking into, as a, as a research project, he's looking into the origins of the World Championship and how they pertain to Birmingham, where the first World Championship final was played. He's, uh, I know he's made contact with the Kamkin family. The, um, the final was played at Kamkin's Hall in Birmingham, um, Bill Kamkin was the promoter, along with Joe Davis, that first event. So Thomas has been doing a lot of research, and he's going to be doing a talk on it. It's an online talk uh, in September, September the 15th, um, and everyone's welcome to go and listen and uh, to what he's got to say. Uh, I'll put a, a link to this in what we might uh, rather grandly call the show notes uh, for the episode, but if you go to birminghamheritageweek.co.uk, it's birminghamheritageweek.co.uk, and you can search for it there. And everyone is welcome. It should be very interesting. Thomas has done a lot of research already. Um, he was, I think, I'm not, not trying to take credit for it, but I think he was partly um, influenced by an episode I did last year where I was look, going around Birmingham myself, um, looking at some of the sites and, and, and sort of questioning why we don't do more to respect the history and heritage of the sport. And I, I know when I met Thomas, our sort of ambition, both of us, is to get a plaque put up at some point. 
um, in John Bright Street, which is down the road here in Birmingham, to commemorate that first world final because it's you know obviously a historic moment for snooker and, and for professional sport in general in Britain. So as I say, I'll put that link in, and uh, I'm sure it'll be very interesting. It's it's, uh, it's right at my street. I mean, literally, I'll live around the corner, <laughs> so it, it really is right at my street, and I'll, I will attend if I can. It, it's during the Shanghai Masters. It depends on my own commentary rota, but I'll do my best to attend, and I'm sure it'll be very interesting. Um, now then. I've been, uh, well, various places, Edinburgh Fringe and so on, but in, t- in a snooker sense, I am writing a book and I've been doing some research. Can't say too much more about it uh, yet, but it's led me into some very interesting areas recently. I interviewed John Virgo and Dennis Taylor, um, Barry Hearn and Ray Reardon in recent weeks. Uh, JV and Dennis Taylor, I mean, you know, t- two great pros of our sport, um, Great raconteurs, some terrific stories, and really interesting information about certain of the early days of snooker, how they started playing, what it was like then. Um, and, you know, as I say, good professionals. I mean, I'll put it this way. I mean, there were Zoom interviews, because Jovi lives in Spain, and Dennis is down in Wrexham, so I did them over Zoom. Um, they were both there on time, because that's what they have learned to do. You know, in the old days of doing exhibitions and so on, you have to present yourself properly, and they still do that. They still have that professionalism to this day. So they were, it's a pleasure to talk to both of those. Uh, Ray Reardon, that was uh, that was something very, very special. Um, went down to see him in person at Churston Golf Club, where he's the life president. And, well, put it this way, the room that we, that we, uh, we went in, it's called Ray's Bar. It's a private bar that's named after him. He's uh, living a very nice life down there. He's 90 now, Ray, sharp as a tack, uh, physically well also. I mean, to, to we recorded an interview, uh, which you may have seen on the World Snooker Tour YouTube channel. And uh, to get to the room to do it, because it had to be a quiet room, quite, about 20 quite steep steps to get up. And he got up them twice, no problem, you know. Um, just a delightful man, very entertaining, great host, um, kept on introducing me to people as if I was kind of the, you know, the celebrity, which obviously I'm not. Um, and just living a nice life down there. He plays golf. He still plays a bit of snooker. And, uh, it's nice that, you know, at his time of life, he has that, that social outlet and held in very high esteem there by everybody. Um, and I spoke to him for nearly two hours and then, um, the only reason I wrapped it up, I mean, I could have carried on and done another two hours because I was absolutely raptured in what he was saying. But we had to stop because we had to record this interview. Will Snooker Tour helped set the interview up and they asked me, would I mind recording an interview with him? No problem. We had to do that because the room that we were doing it in, Ray's Bar, uh, they were going to use for the, the ladies' golf team needed to use for a presentation. So we had to get the interview recorded before that. Um, so we did that. And, uh, yeah, he was brilliant. And, um, again, just very classy Um with all his stories, all his information, all his help as well. So I, I appreciated that. It was a, a really nice experience to go and speak to Ray and uh, nice to see him enjoying his retirement and still watching snooker. He was talking about Luca Purcell, Ronnie O'Sullivan and, and various other people. Just, you know, genuinely a, a legend of the sport. But also, I think it's worth saying, because he's got, I spoke to a couple of people before I went down there and they, and they were telling me stories about you know, in the 1970s, Ray had a sort of reputation for calling out referees and calling out conditions and, you know, very much sort of taking it upon himself to do that. And actually, that was very important for the sport. In popular myth, Alex Siggins was the rebel and Ray Reardon was the establishment figure. It's not quite that simple. It's far more nuanced than that. I think the difference between the two is that Reardon 
was a rebel with a cause. Alex Siggins was just a volatile character. Ray Reardon, when he spoke up, it was to improve things. You know, because a lot of those venues in the 70s, they weren't good enough. And the TV lighting was too bright. And, you know, there were curtains open and light streaming in. One World Championship, rain came through the roof. And he was saying, basically, listen, if we want to be taken more seriously as a sport, if we want to be more professional, then we have to improve things. And, of course, what happened was, after 1976 World Championship, which was played, the final was played at Withenshaw Forum. Again, it didn't seem the best setup. What happened? The promoter, Mike Watterson, found the Crucible in Sheffield, and we've been there ever since. And that was, and Ray actually said this when I interviewed him, it, that was a proper venue. It was a theatre, and it had, you know, proper facilities. And maybe that wouldn't have happened so soon if someone like Ray Ridden hadn't spoken up and caused trouble, because he was the number one player. He wasn't just someone, you know, turning up, complaining. He was the top dog, and so he had the authority to say, this isn't good enough, that isn't good enough, let's try and improve if we want to the sport to move forward. And I think that that is something very important to to point out. He wasn't just, you know, some establishment figure at all. Um, and he was the best player in the 70s as well, quite clearly. That's why he won six world titles. He, he says he actually should have won, well, he thinks another two, certainly at least one more. Um, but anyway, that, that was Ray Reardon. And you can watch the video that I did with uh, Wilson Uvitron on the YouTube channel. And uh, Sam Fletcher came down to record it, the uh, digital media manager, uh, and Sam uh, is a great asset to not only World Snooker, but to snooker in general, because he's also in charge of the Facebook page that World Snooker have, which is a huge success. Um, just two years ago, it had a million followers, which is plenty. Now it's got two million. So in two years, it's doubled its audience, and I'm sure will continue to grow. It's very popular in Pakistan, a lot of the content they put up there, and they update it several times a day, and it's uh, a very important outlet for snooker. This is why I think... You sometimes hear people saying, questioning how the game's promoted, but you've got to remember there's a lot of platforms that not everyone's on, so you, there's certain things you won't see. If you're not on Facebook, you won't see what they're doing there. But um, they've got more followers than the PDC Darts, than the England and Wales Cricket Board, European Tour Golf. It's very successful, and I'm sure it'll grow. And obviously it's monetized as well, so they're making money from it. So uh, I just wanted to, to mention that as a sort of success story. Uh, less successful, as we know, has been the live scoring um, it did seem to finally sort of hold together by the end of the European Masters qualifiers. It's a temporary system um, it, before they launch the new version. World Snooker Tour, I think to their credit, put a statement out after the qualifying to explain that they understood it's not good enough and to apologise and to promise to try and you know get it working properly. There's certain things on there which would be useful, like the breaks, list of centuries, all that sort of stuff. I mean, even today, this is, I'm speaking the day before the British Open qualifiers. I went on there to just see who was playing on Monday. And you can't actually get the list of matches up. Again, I had to go to our good uh, friends at snooker.org who, who have a terrific uh, service there. Um, but anyway, let's, we can only judge it by what happens this week. Let's hope it's better. Let's hope it just works. You know, I mean, people want to find out the scores. It's different to being, you know, reading an article and not agreeing with it. This is information. It's it's solid fact that, you know, the very least should be provided. Um, what are the scores in the tournaments? <laughs> it's not it's not um, asking a lot, really, for that. And uh, hopefully it will be, it will settle down and be um, at least working this week and indeed for the coming weeks um, before the new system is working. My prediction is that it all will be well for the first BBC event. <laughs> I think the UK Championship, I suspect the new system will be working nicely. Uh, before that, we'll see. 
Um, hopefully, you know, we can actually follow the tournament. Of course, it's live, uh, the qualifying live on Discovery Plus. There's some good matches as well coming up. Stephen Hendry's playing. Uh, Jimmy White's playing Stephen Maguire. Uh, and uh, Hendry's got uh, Mohamed Asif from Pakistan. And lots of other interesting matches as well. As I say, Discovery Plus will have all the action. Now, our colleague and friend Alpha Bonzi has written in. He says, I'll start by adding an entry into the correspondent Strange Hobbies and Interest section. Mine is wrestling, to the point that in June I went to the O2 to watch an event, and in August, me and 80,000 others will be at Wembley Stadium watching another event. We don't judge, Alpha. People can do what they like. Uh, my three quick questions this week are, how confident are you in Tom Rowles and Barry Hearn's promises about the sport's future when WST can't even provide a 23-24 season prize money schedule? Uh, well, I'll come back to Barry because I went to see him as well and that was very interesting. But um, in terms of the prize money schedule, I did ask Will Snooker tool last week for this and I've not got it yet. So I hope to I hope to receive a copy of it because it's useful um, to see the prize money breakdown and I'm sure it's useful for people to see it on the website. It may be that with these new events in China, they're still actually working out the exact breakdown. I don't know. Um, but I'll come back to that because that's pertinent to the, the, the trip I, I made to see Barry. Question two, how come individuals, sorry, how come invitationals such as the Shanghai Masters get a WST sanction and Macau and the CBSA event in August won't? What's the criteria? Well, Judd Trump won this event. It's a Chinese Billies and Snooker Association tour event. It's, well, it, it kind of was sanctioned. It, the players were allowed to go there. Um, they, they can actually, and they have played in those events before, so it was nothing new. I suspect, I mean, Shanghai Masters is a long-established event. I suspect the Macau event wasn't sanctioned because actually when, when Tom Rowell was on it from WST, was on the podcast, he mentioned that they were actually talking to Macau um, for doing their own event. So it's not in their interest to sanction a different event there when they're trying to get one of their own on there. Um, so the criteria is what they feel is best for, yes, best for the game, but also best for their own interests in terms of their strategy for promoting tournaments. For example... Let's just let's just say the week before the Shanghai Masters, someone else tried to put an event on in Shanghai. Well, what would be the what would be the um, benefit of sanctioning that when you've got your own event in Shanghai the, the week after? So that I, that is the the criteria, and also um, they do have a, a kind of duty of care to look after the players. You can't do due diligence on every single person who's promising to promote a tournament. You have to be certain that if you give an official sanction that all is well with how it's run and, and prizemen and so on. Question three from Alpha. There's a lot of governing bodies. WPBSA, WCBS, WSF, IBSF, WST, WWS, etc. Are the two men all doing the same thing? I would say no, actually, I, because those bodies you mentioned are not doing the same thing. The WPBSA, people get this wrong. WST is not the governing body of snooker. They're the promotional body. They handle the commercial rights and they run the tour. The governing body is the WPBSA. So they deal with the rules and regulations, player welfare, all that stuff. WCBS is the umbrella organisation for the different Q sports. Uh, WWS is the women's game. And then we have the World Snooker Federation and the International Billiards Snooker Federation. Now, they're two different bodies that govern amateur snooker. That's, that's come about because of a split. The IBSF was always that body. Um, the, the new uh, body that was set up, the WSF, came as a result of a split, which is, frankly, I mean, I could sit here for an hour and talk about it. It's pretty dull stuff. My experience of international amateur snooker going back is it's a lot of men in blazers 
from different parts of the world, and that means there's different sort of cultural uh, sensitivities. But what links them all is they all want to be the first person in charge. Okay, and you get all this intrigue and politics. All the players want to do is play, and they've been asked to basically pick one side or the other. The WSF, of course, if you do well in that and win their main event, you get in get a main tour card. So Stan Moody won the junior title. He's on the main tour. The IBSF don't. Um, they've been sort of cut off from that, which is a shame because you've got a player like Liam Davis who's winning a lot of big tournaments for them and not getting on the main tour through that, even though he's a a big prospect, he's just taken part. Well, Snooker did um, a nice feature with some of the young lads. He was one of them. People like Stan Moody, Liam Pullen were in there as well, Liam Graham. But Liam Davis was, was basically everyone called Liam <laughs> was involved in that. And he he's a great talent. And it seems a shame that because he's chosen that side rather than the other one, that he's sort of been shut out when we need young players like that on tour. Um, but it's a bit of a nest of vipers, the whole amateur scene, to be honest. Um, I remember Clive Everton once, <laughs> once described it as blazerdom gone mad, which I think kind of summed it up a bit. Um, having said that, I mean, there are some, some great opportunities to play tournaments. They get tournaments on both bodies, but it seems a shame that there's been a split there. It'd be nice to think they could be brought back together, uh, you know, at some point. But in the case of, you mentioned Barry Hearn in passing there. Well, I went to see Barry for this book I'm writing. I, I'm, uh, apologies, I can't say too much about the book at the moment. All will be revealed. Um, a short tailor used to say, keep them peeled. Now, there's a <laughs> there's a contemporary reference, one for the teenager. Short tailor. He presented, for those of you who are under the age of basically 60, um, he used to present a programme on ITV called Police 5, which was involved in sort of, you know, running the purveyors of crime down to earth. Uh, sort of low-grade crime watch, really. But that was his, that was his little sign-off at the end. He would say, keep them peeled. But here's the, it's not entirely uh, irrelevant, this, because Short Taylor... People maybe don't know this, but he actually commentated on snooker for ITV. He was like their Ted Lowe in the sort of late 70s, before ITV sort of started showing, you know, major torment snooker. Shaw Taylor commentated for them. Don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why he, he got the gig, but uh, but he did. But anyway, uh, I'm not here to talk about Shaw Taylor. Oh, yes, Barry Hearn. So I went to see him at Matchroom's headquarters, um, which is actually a house. It's in a sort of secluded lane in Brentwood. Um, very imposing building. Barry used to live there, and then he converted it into the matchroom offices. Um, he bought it in 1982. He'd sold the chain of snooker clubs that he owned, the Lucania chain, and made a big profit. And of course, Steve Davis by then was very much, uh, well, he was world champion, and he was very much, you know, starting to make a lot of money for both of them. So for the first time in Barry's life, he was very rich. And he bought this house, and he said he invited his mother around. Uh, to, you know, to show the, the house off, why wouldn't you? And she walked around and said, oh, it's very nice, Barry, but are you sure you're not doing anything illegal? Because, of course, coming from a council house in Dagenham, you know, it seemed improbable that he could rise to these heights, but he did do. Uh, as I say, it's now the offices. As you, as you head towards the front door, you can actually see Barry through the window because his office is at the front. He's actually... I mean, he's supposed to have retired, but, uh, you know, he, he seems to be there most days, so I'm not quite sure how that constitutes retirement. And even the short time I was there, a lot of people I knew from actually multi-sport and other, and other people were, were sort of going into the office to speak to him and, and get his advice on things. He's very much the source um, of everything. Um, but anyway, you, you see him through the window and then uh, it's a hive of activity. Will Snooker Tour are partly based there. You've got the PDC darts, matchroom boxing, uh, matchroom multi-sport who run a lot of different things. Particularly, they made a massive success of the, of the nine-ball pool. 
Um, they've just launched their own sort of association for that. So there's a lot going on there. And, uh, and also there's just a not very good atmosphere when you get in there. And I think that's the thing, what, what Barry's, Barry's ethos that is sort of handed down. It's for the for the company really. It's three. It's threefold. Firstly, it's they want to provide sporting events and experiences that, that make people enjoy spending the money. So it's been a good night out at the darts, at the snooker, at the boxing, at the pool, whatever. Secondly, obviously they want to make money for themselves, and they've certainly been successful in that. And thirdly, they want to have fun doing it, and that's definitely something that runs throughout Matchroom. They, they they have a lot of fun and they enjoy what they're doing and that all came from Barry he's the sort of the the, the source of it all really anyway I spoke to him for over an hour uh, for the book and then we had a chat afterwards about the the future of snooker which is very revealing as well and that was private but as I was leaving he asked me a question which I've thought about a lot since because there wasn't a specific answer to it but the question that he asked me I think will. Well, I think it will define snooker's long-term future, and the answer is going to come in the short term. He said that next season he thinks he can get the prize money up to twenty million, and that'd be brilliant. Obviously, when he came in initially, it was three and a half million. It's gone up and up. Obviously, during COVID, it stagnated. It maybe even fell a bit because we lost obviously tournaments in China. But he reckons he can get up to twenty million next year. That's with some new events and also just business management. Um, you know, in terms of how the money is allocated. But the question he asked me was, OK, we can get it up to 20 million, but how do we get it up to 40 million? I.e., how do we double it? And the answer to that, if that is their aim, he didn't say that it was, but that's what he was asking. How do we get it up to 40 million? The answer to that, I think, is interesting, because if that is what they want to do, then they're going to have to start doing some things that people are not going to like. And the most obvious one how do you double the prize money? Well, you need new investment. Where do you get new investment? You look at what other sports have done. So what if football, Formula One, tennis, golf, boxing, where have they gone? Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, we know, have a huge amount of money that they want to spend on sport. It's controversial because of their human rights record and the accusations of sports washing. But the fact is, these successful sports have gone down that route. The train has left the station. So I guess the question is, is snooker on it? Or is it still at the platform looking at its shoes? Next year, it looks like there will be a tournament in Saudi Arabia. There was supposed to be one, as we know, and then COVID intervened. The dates have been agreed, but the contract has not been signed. So, as it stands at the moment, it's not been officially signed off. Barry's spoken about this already in the press. This is not, this is not breaking news. He's, he's talked about this already. Um, so it looks like there will be a tournament in Saudi Arabia. Now, it's going to be the biggest prize money outside the World Championship. But it may well be the Saudis look at that and say, well, we want the biggest tournament. Why can't we have the World Championship? And this is where I think snooker fans will be concerned because 2027 is going to be a big year for snooker and it's only four years away. It's the last year of the Crucible contract. It's the last year of the BBC contract. It's the last year of the Eurosport contract. So there's a lot on the table there that's up for grabs. It's worth remembering, in 2017, Barry Hearn was very proud to sign a 10-year contract at the Crucible. He said he didn't want it on his gravestone that the World Championship would leave the Crucible. I sense now there's been a major shift. Obviously, he's stepped back. He's not actually um, the person making all the decisions anymore. Eddie Hearn runs Matchroom. Steve Dawson runs World Snooker Tour. 
But I think the key thing that has changed and that has maybe sort of dented, uh, dented that sort of sentimental approach is COVID. Because when COVID came along, sport stopped. And when sport stopped, obviously Matchroom's ability to make money stopped. Now, to their great credit, they and World Snooker Tour got torments on. We had a season of mainly behind closed doors snooker. Players got to play, fans got to watch. People like me commentating got to earn a living as well. It was it was great that that happened. But they got no ticket revenue in that time. And also some of the staging costs, you know, changed because they had to work out a way to do it safely and employ people to make sure that, that happened. So if they took a dent. They've got vast reserves. They, you know, they were never going to be in any trouble, but they took a dent. And I think what it said to them was that in the real world, it's not necessarily everything's going to always go along well. Things can happen like pandemics and things that are going to affect sport and affect the business. And I sense now that after that experience, which was quite bruising in some ways uh, for for any organisation, a matchroom not immune to that, I think since then they've sort of hardened up a bit. And their approach to the World Championship now is they've said to Sheffield City Council, if you want to keep it, you've got to do something for us. And what they want them to do, and it's a big thing, it's a massive thing, is build a new venue. They want a new venue with more seats so they can sell more tickets. Because in the hard-headed world of business... The question, I guess, is why will we have our biggest tournament at our smallest venue? In just a pure business um, sense, it doesn't make any sense. Now, of course, the history and the tradition and, yes, the sentiment as well, we all know the reasons for keeping the Crucible. I personally believe one of the reasons that tournament has been so iconic, so successful, so embedded in the DNA of, of snooker fans. Yes, it's the World Championship, obviously, but it's that venue. And it's the fact that it's small, actually, and intimate, and tests people, tests their mettle. And some people don't pass the test. Some people you'd expect to, who win tournaments in other venues, don't get on with that place. That's one of the reasons it's been successful. But, as I say, something has definitely shifted in terms of how they are looking at it. And again, if you if you want to get the money up and take snooker forward, there are arguments that you can make, certainly, to go somewhere where you can earn more money and somewhere like Saudi Arabia certainly would be that so as I see it for the World Championship as we head towards 2027 there's three possibilities number one is we stay at the Crucible and just continue there number two is we stay in Sheffield and play at a new venue they may call the new venue the Crucible but it would be a bigger venue or number three it goes elsewhere and for the first time in the 26 years I've been working in professional snooker I actually think it will not stay at the Crucible. And this is a recent thing for me. Even a couple of years ago, I was convinced it would. But I think that is now unlikely, past 2027. And I know a lot of snooker fans will be very disappointed to hear that. It's not official. This is my analysis. But I think they are ready to move it. And one of the sticking points has always been the BBC contract, because the BBC host broadcasters they prefer it to stay in Britain and I'm sure they with the history and, and, and the sort of pull that the Crucible has for, for audiences viewing audiences I'm sure they would like it to stay there but frankly the money that World Snooker Tour get from the BBC pales really to what they could get from somewhere like Saudi Arabia with all their wealth and the, the, the willingness to spend big money on on sport it's you know 25 million to them really is nothing um, staggering as that is to say We'll see, won't we? We'll find out. Um, if if, I, if the news comes through that they've signed a new deal with the Crucible, that would be brilliant. But I, I think people need to start preparing themselves for the fact that the, the chances of that are receding. 
Um, I was never on board with the idea it would go to China. All those years, all those stories that people wrote, I never thought it was likely, and I was right. It didn't happen. But I think now it's far more likely that uh, the Crucible's days are numbered. And Sheffield City Council are in a difficult difficult position because the, the World Championship brings in a lot of money to the local economy, and also it's synonymous with Sheffield, so it reflects well on them to have it. But it's asking a lot to build a new venue for the very simple reason that they're going to be stuck with it for the other 50 weeks of the year. What do they put in it in those weeks? If they built a theatre that was 3,000 seats capacity, that would be bigger than any theatre in London. You know, the Crucible is the size it is for a reason. You know, that catchment area, of course, they've got the Lyceum next door as well. You know, you're not going to fill a massive theatre in most parts of Britain every night unless you've got, you know, literally the biggest show in the country. So they would have to look into that and think, well, how are we going to make this pay? Would this be worthwhile? Or are we just, is it just a money loser? Um, so it's a difficult situation for everybody. I think there's a bit of negotiating going on and maybe, you know, some of this is almost sort of putting up the bat signal and saying, look, we're going to take it away. What are you going to do for us? We'll see. It's not impossible it will stay there, but I do get, do, do just get the sense that things are shifting and, you know, many people would say, disappointingly, the shifting away from the Crucible. What Chris Down is going to do with the Crucible Almanac, I don't know. Um, that, that Maybe something that no one's thought of yet. But this is one of the problems with constantly sort of complaining and, 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 and running things down and saying things aren't good enough. And, you know, people who call for change don't always like the change they get. Sometimes you look back and you think, actually, we had it pretty good. I'll give you an example you look at other sports, I mean, look at all the snooker that's going to be on television for the next year. Something like 150 days of TV snooker on the various platforms. The World Swimming Championship recently, okay? Now, swimming is a major Olympic sport, and outside of the Olympics, the World Championship, obviously, is their biggest event. No British TV company would show it. They couldn't get it on British TV. Their main event, not some sort of, you know, third-grade thing. The World Championship, they couldn't get on British television, Whereas snooker, you know, we had 21 days of the Championship League, we've got the European Masters coming up, Shanghai Masters, British Open, so on and so on and so on throughout the course of the season. We're really well served uh, as a television audience. So people who constantly sort of say things aren't good enough, well, stick around. Five years from now, you might look back and think they weren't so bad. Um, we'll see. All I know is a lot of the people who have called for a lot of these changes will be the first people to say we shouldn't be going to Saudi Arabia. Um, people who say the game's not international enough, there's not enough money in it. <laughs> Suddenly, that source of income, maybe they don't like. But what's the alternative? That's the thing. Um, you can only get so much out of TV money, rights fees. You can only get so much out of sponsorship, which is a quite difficult area for snooker to succeed in. And you can only get so much out of ticket revenue. And they're the three main sources of income. So unless you partner with, you know, one of these regimes, we're kind of back to where we were. So if the ambition is to double the prize money, this is a road they will go down. If people are happy to continue like it is now, maybe they won't need to do that. Um, and that's going to be the choice going forward for, for Matchroom, for World Snooker Tour, and for the players. I mean, the players are in a position where they can't afford to turn down money from wherever it comes from really particularly players low down the ranking list um, if you find out that you're on 10 grand for the for winning one match rather than three for every tournament 
I would say that you, frankly, are not going to care where the money comes from. Um, we'll see. As I say, none of this is written in stone, but I just got the sense of talking to Barry. It's very different, you see, when you're actually, you know, so much of chat about Snoop, including on this podcast, is sort of theoretical. But when you're actually face to face with the people in power and you actually sat down with them, what you understand is there are real decisions that have to be made. It's not theoretical. It's the real world. And they're charged with exploiting the commercial rights of the sport as much as they can. That is literally what Will Snooker Tour are there to do. So if this opportunity comes along, I suppose what is the argument against taking it other than the the tradition that we have at the Crucible and other places? Uh, put it this way, in five or six years, the tour could look very different, the composition of it, where the tournaments are, who's paying for it, and maybe even who's running it. Um, all we can do is... Uh, He's just watch with interest, I guess. Anyway, that was my trip to see Barry. And uh, he was a terrific host as well. He was uh, <laughs> had some great stories about his time with Steve Davis and just generally within snooker, particularly in the 1980s. Anyway, we'll go back to Phil Spivy because he, he's not finished yet. He said, I'm loving the summer podcast. I always enjoyed the latter part of the Championship League. Not a tournament I've bothered with before, but the last day was rather good. I'm always struck by the current strength and depth on the tour. By my reckoning, only two ranking events last season, the English Open and Tour Championship, had a semi-final lineup where all four players were in the top 16. At the time of the tournament, that is. Some semi-finalists and events joined the top 16 later in the season. And I believe at least eight or nine of the finals, including a non-top 16 player. That's quite a, a startling fact, actually, assuming it's correct, of course, which I'm sure it is. Only two ranking events had... A semi-final lineup where there were four members of the top 16. And, of course, the Tour Championship is for the top eight on the one-year list. So they're going to be top 16 players, basically. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it's not surprising that event. So the English Open was the only other one where that happened. Phil says it was a similar story the season before. It just shows how good the players further down the rankings really are. To pick out a random mid-ranked player, Chris Wakelin, he's usually ranked around the number 40 mark, a bit higher at the moment. When I see him, he looks very good, especially as a break builder. Yet his record in ranking events... He's quite modest, his shootout win aside. Uh, there's no criticism of him, far from it. But it shows again how much quality is around if a player as good as he is can rarely make the latter stages of tournaments. And the same can be said of pretty much all players on the tour. It all adds up to great viewing experience because despite the proliferation of low-ranked players in semis and finals, they are nearly always compelling to watch. Roll on the European Masters. It's impossible to predict who might well do, do well in it, but whatever happens, it'll be brilliant. A couple of predictions for the new season. I think Jamie Jones could have a breakthrough and win a tournament. I also think this could be the season where Karen Wilson moves up another gear and wins multiple events, including a big one like the UK one of the players series. Who knows? Well, who knows indeed? I mean, Chris Wakelin is a good example, I think, of <coughs> a terrific player. I mean, I think I think he will start to do better now. Now he's won a tournament. He's got a bit of confidence on board. But being ranked around the 40 mark, you're a seriously good player. You know, time was... You know, th those those players were not certainly not as good as they are now. Um, but it's who makes the move, who makes not just sort of one breakthrough, but a permanent breakthrough and becomes a top player. It may well be Chris Wakelin. You mentioned Jamie Jones, another very, very talented player. Um, yeah, I don't think it would be a surprise if he won a tournament. Kyron Wilson's an interesting one. He's won uh, ranking events already. He has come short, come up short though in a few big tournaments. Obviously, the World Championship he was runner-up. He was runner-up in the Masters, the Champion of Champions last season, the Tour Championship. So he's been losing finals of big tournaments, not quite converting them, losing to some top players: Ronnie O'Sullivan, in the World Championship, Mark Allen in the Masters, 
O'Sullivan again in the Champion of Champions and uh, the Tour Championship, Sean Murphy. So, you know, there were essentially matches he was nailed on to win by any means. But it's he's an interesting case, I think, Karen, actually. And he was in the position maybe Barry Hawkins was in a few years ago. Good enough to win tournaments, good enough to win finals. It's just that final step of just getting out of the line in some of the really big finals. Um, and, well, you, you think it might be this season, and who knows? It wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be a huge shock, I don't think. James Cook, our colleague in America. I should say, by the way, uh, the, the Women's uh, US Open has been on. It's, it's live on YouTube on the Ox Billiards, uh, on the Ox Billiards channel in Seattle there where they're playing it. And uh, David Burney, our friend from Canada, has been doing the, the commentary, which is, I saw a bit of it the other day. Very entertaining. But also David is, is probably the best-dressed commentator since Rex Williams because he's in vision a few times, dressed very smartly, far smarter than <laughs> most people do in Britain. Rex was always immaculately turned out. Um, by the time this podcast goes out, the, the tournament will be over, but I just wanted to uh, to mention that. James Cook, anyway, says, It's been a while since my last correspondence, but I've enjoyed listening to the podcast in recent weeks. On a 10-hour drive from New York City to Toronto in July, I did most of the catch-ups. And on the 9-hour drive back, I think it was quicker as it was downhill, <laughs> I went through the rest, including talking stook and framed. My friends think I'm mad, and they'd probably be correct, but I'm amongst friends here. Given my rec- the recent serious topics about WST content, seat comfort and dodgy scoreboards, I think I-, I thought I'd try and lighten the tone and share my latest chance encounter with a snooker player. But this is a bit niche, which I know you'll like. Last night, I had a chance encounter with none other than Sanderson and Lamb in a dream. <laughs> this is niche. <laughs> in fairness, yes, yeah, Sanderson and Lamb in a dream. I was playing him in the World Championship quarterfinal, and after the first session, was 13-5 down. It's first to 15 in this version. You see, the championship's already changed. <laughs> it's already changed. Never mind 2027. It's already gone to pot. All puns intended. So going into the second session, I had no recollection of the previous session, other than that my highest break was 26. So that wasn't helpful. Uh, I'm sorry, so I wasn't hopeful. Uh, I remember seeing Ronnie and Stephen and maybe Judd in the audience watching. Anyway, just before play started, the whole table flooded and the game was abandoned. Does that count as a chance encounter, even though it was in the subconscious? I've no idea why it was Sanderson Lamb that popped into my dream. I had to Google him this morning to confirm the name. I think you've covered snooker dreams previously, but this appears to be the Venn diagram of dreams and chance encounter topics. Can any listeners share similar, I wonder? And if Sanderson Lamb is listening to this, it was nice to meet you. Well, there's a lot to uh, unpack there, James. Um, <laughs> it may need a professional to do it. Um, but... Uh, You've stumbled upon something here. You say when the, the ta- you say before play started, the table flooded and the game was abandoned. Well, here's the thing. Of course, this brings to mind, and I mentioned Ray Reardon earlier. It all comes full circle. The Clyde Side Classic. Now, this is on YouTube. If you've never seen it before, it's uh, well, it, it purports to be uh, the final of a snooker match between Stephen Hendry and Ray Reardon. And spoiler alert here: at the end of it, Stephen is over the, the last black, and he. <laughs> Basically, the, the snooker table turns into a, a sort of swimming pool, in effect. And he falls in and nearly drowns. And then it's like he's picturing it in his mind um, that this happens. And then he snaps out of it. He pots the black, shakes Ray's hand. And as he's shaking Ray's hand, there's water running down it. <laughs> and that actually, that film, I looked it, looked it up, actually. The Clyde it was actually um, broadcast on... I think it was the night, the first day of the 1990 final, where Stephen Hendry became the youngest champion. So it's interesting timing. But yeah, so you, well, I, I don't know what else to say about that really. But um, 
we did cover dreams before. They're not always that interesting, it's got to be said. But, uh, you know, do let us know if there's been anything... Uh, keep it clean, obviously, if there's been anything worth reporting in a dream involving snooker people. Finally this week, Dean Scott. He says, I write in support of Trevor, Trevor Sweetman's plea to World Snooker to make the game's TV broadcast archives more accessible to the public. It's clear from YouTube there's a lot of interest in these old matches, but World Snooker seem reluctant to share their own vast archive despite this. I've emailed them on a few occasions, but only once received a brief reply stating there are no plans to make the service, the archive, publicly available. Barry Hearn has stated previously there's not enough of a market to make a service like this financially viable, but surely there should be more than just commercial considerations to this. It's about preserving the game's past so that fans can revisit it for years to come. Think of it of a way of bringing Q-Track to life. I agree YouTube uploads by Will Snooker may be one way forward, although I'm not sure how workable your suggestion of splitting costs between them and members of the public who donate footage would be. Another option would be to make it available on Matchroom Live, which will provide a good incentive for fans to subscribe to that service. Perhaps there are rights issues with doing so, but surely Barry Hearn could wangle it with Will Snooker if necessary. And if there are concerns about cost implications, then perhaps Snooker's archive enthusiasts could form a type of preservation society on a voluntary basis with the aim of filling gaps from Snooker's past. Something along the lines of what Doctor Who fans have been doing for decades to preserve their beloved show. Well, thank you, Dean. I mean, yes, I mean, there's an answer in here somewhere. I'm not quite sure what it is. My suggestion was that... Because a lot of it has just been taped off the telly. That's the thing. It's not the original footage, is it? It's people have sat down. Terry Griffiths has played Nigel Gilbert at the World Championship and they've recorded it and then, then they've uploaded it. Now, I personally see no harm in that at all. I think I think it, it is... There's matches there that a niche audience will want to watch, but actually it's not the same as putting up the World Championship final from this year and trying to make money off the back of it. People aren't doing it for that. They're, they're doing it for the reasons you talk about, which is to share footage of, you know... Obscure games, yes, but you know it's all part of the the, the sports rich tapestry. I mean, someone put it the other the other year, the other year uh, last year, I think. I think it was our friend MJT Snooker. He put up um, he or she, I don't know who it is, but they they put up uh, Martin Clark Joe O'Boy in the Fidelity Unit Trust International. Now, that is niche stuff, uh, Martin Clark Joe O'Boy, and I'm, but it's it is niche. But I know one person who watched it, Neil Robertson, because I spoke to him about it because <laughs> he knows Martin now. See, Martin's Will Snooker tournament director. And he was sort of intrigued by it, and he watched it. So, the, the, you know, there's people out there who will watch this stuff. But there, there is a, a difference, I think, between an obscure match like that, which is being put up really just for the love of the fact that it ever, was ever played, and then, you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Judd Trump, where the, the, the idea is clearly to try and make money off it. And if you don't hold the rights to a match like that, yeah, then I don't really see what right you have to try and do that. So I suppose the question is who decides what's, what the difference is between the two, I think there is, there's got to be a solution to this, as I said when we had the original email. Um, I think just stopping people putting videos up is not good because, like you say, it is part of the sports history. The problem is, you see, everything now is about money, isn't it? I mean, when YouTube started, it was just a video sharing service, but people realised they could have money. And so that's what it's become about. I was thinking about this, what I was saying about the, the Crucible and everything and doubling the prize money. I mean, when I was growing up watching sport, you'd never heard about money. Now, it may be because of that age, I wasn't thinking about money. As you become an adult, you do. But go back to the 1980s. Obviously, Trevor Francis, who's just passed away, he became Britain's first billion pound footballer in the 70s. But in general, you, di you didn't turn on a sports programme and hear people talking about money. I wouldn't have known what the prize money was in snooker back then and equally couldn't have cared less. Didn't watch it for that. 
Um, whereas now, all sport seems to be entirely about how much money can be made, not just by the people playing it, but by everyone around it. Um, and it may be naive to think we can sort of go back to the, you know, the, the sort of days where it was played because people actually wanted to a play it and be successful at it and b watch it, but and enjoy it. But it does seem there does seem to have been a shift where now everything surrounding sport seems to be about how much money can be made from it, and it seems like no amount is ever enough. That's the other thing. You look at golf. A lot of people in golf were making a fortune. But even those people went over to the live side, the Saudi Arabian side, because they could make even more. What they what, what they spend all this money on, I've no idea. Um, uh, but anyway, that's <laughs> that's a rather sound note to end things on, but we are going to end it there. Um, so any thoughts on any issues? Hopefully we'll be back more regularly now. Uh, I'll be interested to see what, how people think Luca Brussel are going to get on, because next week I'll be looking at how first-time world champions have fared in their following season. It's quite interesting. And Luca obviously, is in that position. So um, we'll be seeing him at the European Masters. But uh, in the meantime, we're members of the Sports Social, Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. And that is it, really. Um, fingers crossed the live scoring holds up. British Open qualifiers, European Masters. And then we really get into the sort of the thick of the season. And it's going to be an interesting season, I think, this year. A few players, maybe, with a point to prove. Um, some of the older guard, maybe, are just... You know, questions being asked about how long they can sort of continue at the top level, potentially. There's a few players who underperformed last season as well, who had been used to winning tournaments. And who are the new winners going to be? Who are the new champions going to be? It all will be revealed over the next few months. But that's it. It's nice to be back. And uh, as we always say, goodbye-bye. Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.